Welcome to another edition of Pod Jerky. I am your host, Tom, a.k.a. Director Awesome. And today's episode, we are joined by Robert Kershaw, pen named Eli Shaw. He's the author of a book called If I Die Before I Wake. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Great to be anywhere yeah. right now. Right? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. So uh, I, I actually met you through uh, somebody on Facebook. They actually commented on one of my posts that I made for another episode that I was doing. Uh, and they introduced us together and uh, said that you had a book and you were going to be talking about um, in the book about being a caregiver for your entire career. Um, why don't you explain to everybody what you kind of uh, define as a caregiver um, in your terms? Okay. Um, well, in, initially, I, I really didn't look at myself as a caregiver. I was just doing what I had to do to survive or to um Actually, yeah, to, to survive. If I saw something going on or whatever, uh, for example, when I was 10 years old, I, my next door neighbor just moved in. He was he was 10 also. And um, I thought he was Chinese. And, you know, we became uh, friends. And I told my mother I had a Chinese friend and she invited him over one night for supper. And we were sitting there. And after he left, uh, she asked me to uh help her dry the dishes. And I knew I was in trouble or she had something to talk to me about because that was her, you know, um, I, I couldn't get away from her that way. <laughs> and uh, so she explained to me that he wasn't Chinese, but he had a thing called mongoloidism, which is what Down syndrome was called then. So I immediately went to the encyclopedia and I found the word and it came from Mongolia. So I, you know, I figured, well, that's close to China. So I told everybody I had a Mongolian friend. So, you know, not really understanding what Down syndrome was, um, I kind of, you know, became his friend and whatnot. And um, also I became his mentor, his protector, uh, because I could see what I was looking at was the kids were bullying him and pushing him around. And of course, he thought it was a game. So you know, he, he they would push him around and, and he stopped laughing because they were laughing. And I saw it as they were hurting him. So I would just go in and, and take care of it. Um, and so we, we were friends for a while. And then when he left, uh, when I, I asked him if he was going to go to camp because I had to go to camp that summer. And uh, he said, no, they don't take people like me, which I didn't. I just didn't understand that. So I went to camp. I came back. His family had moved away. His father was in the you know, military. And um, I apparently I was I thought it was my fault. You know, I took blame for it and uh, whatever. And um, what I uh, later on, apparently my mother told me this later on. She um, I started a camp for kids with disabilities when I was 19. And it all kind of came out of the relationship I had with Charlie because uh, I was working with kids with disabilities with a group that we just did it you know it was just something to do and um i noticed that there were no camps there was no nothing around and i took it upon myself to do it but none of the adults would help us with it or they would help us but they wouldn't take it on as a project so we did it ourselves it was run uh for one week we had 30 teenagers 60 kids with disabilities and we ran the whole thing ourselves and paid for it uh right after that i won a couple of awards for doing it um and my mother was given, you know, the honors of giving me the award. And what she said was, she said, when Bob was 10 years old, um, he told me that he was going to do something to change the world or change the way people treated kids like Charlie in the world. And because of this camp, I can see what he was talking about. 
later on, as I grew older and I started doing more things, I found out, I started to realize that I was in what they call a caregiver's mode almost 24-7. There was something wrong. I had to take care of it. I had to to fix it. Or if if, like um, I was taking care of my dog, I was taking care of my school work, I was taking care of my bicycle at the time. Uh, When I got a car, I had to take care of my car. So we were all... In that sense, and it wasn't until 1997 that I actually, or 1992, that I actually started to realize that we are all caregivers innately. I mean, we just take care of everything around us, including ourselves. And it, the the basic foundation for that is um, is very. It's all the same. Is that you have to have some sort of compassion, knowledge of what's wrong and the ability to change whatever's happening or take care of it, and no matter where it is. So uh, what I was finding out was that every time I turned around, uh, um, there just seemed to be something going on that I really didn't like seeing happen. So I would, you know, do something. After after the camp, I went to Brazil, um, and I, uh, while I was in Brazil, they, they have a the, the town I was in, they used to make jute. They used to grow ram, what they call rami, or uh, they call it hami, but it's uh, called rami, and it's a plant. And the kids in town, or the kids on the farms, and most of them were empregados. They they were very poor people, and the kids had to work on the feet in the fields. And when they would put the the, the plants into the uh, shredders, their arms would go in, and they would lose their arms. So they were like literally hundreds of kids with only one arm. And I just thought that, that you know, they weren't being taken care of. They weren't being um, worked with. Uh, they were basically just kind of left on their own, you know, pretty much. So I started a program with the mayor down there and I said, listen, why don't we get something together? Let's do something and try to figure out a way of giving them some sort of support, either educationally or whatever. So in that sense, I was the caregiver also. Um when uh, in the 1960s, uh, I started working with the institutions and I call, I call them warehouses uh, because uh, every, every institution that I worked in, um, it was basically people who didn't fit the comfort level of the community. So the community was upset about, you know, the, or the family or whatever. And usually the community would get to the family and say, you know, why don't you just put them in an institution? It would be so much easier for you. Right. And so that's how people were doing it. And right back all the way back to the 20s and even before. And what I found was that there were so many people I was working with that were in in day rooms where you could smell urine and people naked walking around because they, they would just rip their clothes off. And there were people sitting there who were brilliant. They were absolutely brilliant and you could have a whole an intelligent conversation with, but because of the deformity of their body or uh, they couldn't walk well or they, their, their legs were deformed or their, their face was deformed, they were put in the institution, but they were normal. Mentally, in every sense of the word, they were totally normal. And it blew my mind. It really, I just couldn't even understand it. And so I, unfortunately, I'm sort of a rebel in, in some areas. And I ended up taking a bunch of the guys outside and uh, we, I taught them how to play basketball because, I mean, uh, football, because we used to watch it all the time on TV. And so I taught them how to play football. And then we went out into the grassy area 
the the cottages we lived in had a day room which is all some all tiled and then outside of the day room was a caged in area with literally a cage of the, the wiring on the top so they couldn't climb out so they were caged animals basically and so i would sneak them out behind the building so that the administration couldn't see it and we would play football on the grass and the, to watch them play roll around in the grass and throw grass at each other and i mean it was just amazing and then one day two of them threw the ball too far the administration saw it and came over immediately to ask me what was going on and i told him i said you know you, te- you treat them like animals they need to be out i'm sorry you know we need to do something and he says well i have to suspend you because you're not supposed to be doing this i came back two weeks later and i had to go to the office and he said I said, well, am I fired or what? And he said, no, but you got, we're giving you a raise and we're going to hit, you're going to head a program to study um, some of the things that we can do to, you know, expand their universe, whatever you want to call it. And we actually had them building trails in the woods so that they could walk around in the woods. Um, we had them, we had uh, roped in areas so that they, they could play football within the roped in areas. So, my whole mental, when when you say caregiver, um, or when I say caregiver, in most of the sense of the word, I'm taking care of somebody, all right? Whether right now I'm, um, I'm taking care of a guy, I'm, I'm his uh, job coach. Uh, he has uh, cerebral palsy and his father owns a restaurant and I'm helping him do the dishwashing. And so we go in, uh, we have lunch and then we go in and do the dishes and he can't stand up that long. So we have a I, I kind of coach them in doing things. So in that sense, I'm a caregiver, um, you know, and, and when, when I say it, it's, it's kind of a broad sense of the word in, if, when you read the book, you're going to, you'll probably understand later on that um, caregiving is, is such an untapped um, resource or whatever. Um, the, the, we, we don't celebrate caregiving the way we should. There are over 60 million caregivers in the United States at any given time that are not paid, right? And that means uh, you're taking care of your brother or your mother. Um, you're taking care of a relative or a friend or you know somebody. And most people are not paid because our, our system doesn't allow it. So we have over 60 million people at any given time. And that's kind of, I call it like a, like a bread dough effect where uh, all of it, you fold it over and some, some of them leave, but as you fold it over, more come in. So they're all different people at all, all the time, but it's still 60 million, you know? And, you know, there, there, there are, if you count all of the caregivers, probably every person in the United States at one time will be a caregiver in some way, you know, of taking care of uh, anybody. And what I started to realize in 1992 uh, only because I hit a brick wall. My my best friend died of AIDS. I, I took care of him for four years. Um, my father died um, a heart surgery, uh, and I was his caregiver for quite a while. And my next door neighbor died of, she was 80, 92, and she died of a stroke, and I was her caregiver. They all died within three or four months. And when the first one died, I was like, okay, I got more, you know, I'm, I've, I've still got something to do. Second one died, I've only got one third one died, I hit a brick wall. I had nowhere, you know, as a caregiver, you know, in, in that sense, when you you stop being a caregiver, um, it's almost devastating. It really is. And it happens to me all the time. When I, uh, two years ago, I lost one of my 
uh, clients that I worked with. I, I had been with him for 27 years. He had cerebral palsy. I started working with him when he, when he was about nine years old and he died. And mostly because of COVID, not, he didn't have COVID, but nobody could come in. He was, he was all by himself. And his mother, who's 80, was taking care of him. She couldn't lift him out of bed. So he was laying there for two years, looking at the ceiling, basically. And here's a kid who has been so social uh, and, and thrived on being sociable. Uh, and I couldn't even go in and talk to him. You know? So he basically died of COVID. That's why I say. Um, and when he died, I went into the worst depression I've had in a long, long time. Um, and I didn't, I, I've never understood depression. So being a caregiver, um, you're, when somebody is a caregiver, you're actually, you turn yourself off and you turn on whatever the needs are of that person. When I walk into Nathan's room, or used to, when I would walk into his room, um, you know, in the beginning, I would say, Nathan, I had the worst day in the world, man. I just, you know, I, uh, I got into an accident or whatever, you know, and he's laying there looking at me going, you want to talk about a worst day? You sit here and look at the ceiling, you know? And, you know, it, I started to, re even though he couldn't verbalize it, I started to realize that I'm putting all this stuff on him and he doesn't need it. And so I started coming in and go, hey, Nate, how you doing? What's happening? And we started talking about the sun or, you know, everything was, I had to turn everything from negative to positive. And from that point on, I started to understand everything, you know, you, you turn yourself off and everything goes you have to take care of that person. And that's the focal point. So, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, I I, that, that was great. I mean, I, I, I sit here and I listen and I think about the parallels. Like before we started this recording, we, we talked about how I work in the school system. And I think about yeah. the parallels that uh, match up from caregiving to uh, looking after special needs kids in school. Uh, now I'm an educational assistant uh, that works with the higher uh, needs uh, kids. So uh, because I'm a male, there's not a lot of males in the industry. And I work with the um, the higher needs ones where they're more violent, they're, they're nonverbal, um, they have medical conditions. And you never think about it as being a caregiver. I'm like, I'm just there to do my job. Uh, my student has um, seizures and multiple seizures a day. And uh, the last week, we had to end up calling uh, an ambulance because his seizure lasted more than five minutes and we had to go in the ambulance with him and take him to the hospital. And you're not expecting that at your job. Uh, you're no. expecting that you're going to be working with the student, doing a little bit of uh, schoolwork with him, but also teaching life skill and, you know, just how to, how to navigate through the world uh, where parents can't teach them that uh, when they're at school. So we, we take on that role, but then you have to also turn yourself into like a medical, you know, practitioner on the spot uh, and administer medication and call, you know, 911 and keep them safe until that happens. Uh, you have to do different things for these kids. So there are a lot of parallels in that, in that sense. And, you know, you are a caregiver, you're taking care of someone you're, you know, um, I, somebody said something to me a while back about, uh, how do you compare yourself to a doctor or a nurse? And I said, I don't really compare myself to them because they're professionals. Right. And, me as a caregiver, I'm basically going with my gut. I'm, I'm, I'm put in a situation where I'm there for that one person and whatever those needs are, I have to determine what the needs are and I have to take care of it. Um, where when you're a nurse or whatever, you have the tools, you have all of the facilities and whatnot. People come to you uh, for help and whatnot. And they are caregivers in, in that sense. They're, they're taking care of their patients. You know, they are. And, um, 
but when it, what I find, I, w- I was in the hospital in January for an obstructed bowel, and um, which <laughs> I wouldn't wish on anybody, believe me. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't fun. And what I found was all the, you know, the nurses found out that I wrote the book. So they all looked it up and I had to find, you know, what and we would have literally conferences in my room, <laughs> me sitting in the Johnny and all the nurses standing around me were talking about, you know, their perception of caregiving. And what they started to realize was they are caregivers too. You know, that even though they're professionalists, a job, whatever, um, they're, they're taking care of somebody. They're, they're in the caregiving mode. That means compassion. You have to understand the situation. You have to um, be willing and able to do something and have the tools to do it. So in, in all of those senses, they are caregivers. Um, if you have a car and it breaks down, you have to take care of it. You have to have, you have, to have the compassion and the patience, <laughs> whatever, to do something with it and the tools and the wherewithal to do it. So it's, you know, in, in every sense of the word, innately, we are all take caregivers. Um, you take care of your house, you paint it because it needs it. You know, um, if somebody falls down, you go to help them out, you, you bring them up. Then what do you do? You ask them if they need a help, need a ride, or you ask them if they need something else, whatever. It's, it's a continuum that goes on. And, and because of most of the time, I think, because of who we are, um, we, we have that innate sense of caring. I see this in, in the Ukraine. We were talking about the Ukraine earlier, and, and, I, and I, I see this in the Ukraine. Look at how, look at the compassion we have for the, for the Ukrainians right now. Look what's happening to the world. You know, we're becoming caregivers or whatever you want to call it, but we are becoming um, interested in helping whoever's over there in some way. I feel helpless. I have friends over there, and I talked to them. I talked to them last night. And I can't do a damn thing. I can't, there's nothing I can do. I mean, I might be able to send them money or whatever, but you know, when you don't feel like you're doing enough. Yeah. 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 And, and when you're a caregiver, you know, when I'm working with Nathan, he's, he's laying there. Am I doing enough to help him out? Do I get him out often enough? Do I, do I bring him outside of the house to go for a ride off, you know, more often? Um, is it enough? You know, we don't know, you know, and, and a lot of times they can't tell us. Um, one of the things that I found, um, when I was taking care of a friend of mine with HIV, um, he lost his, his sort of his ability to communicate in some ways. And, um, I, I went to the library and I said, I got to find a book to see if I can read something on caregiving and, and taking care of somebody with HIV. And I went around and I couldn't find one book. This is 1992. There wasn't one book that I could find except for doctors, nurses, and manuals, uh, stuff like that, all technical. And there wasn't one book that I could find. One of the librarians came over to me and he said, I heard you're looking for something about uh, for caregivers. And I said, yeah. He said, well, I'm going to give you a book and you can do with it whatever you want. But if you can translate it to the, the whole world of caregiving, I think you've got, you can probably get a lot out of this book. And so when he gave me the book, I took it home and I read it. And the name of the book was Caring for Your Pet. Well, the whole concept that I was reading in there, it basically tells you, you have to understand what the pee-pee dance is. You have to understand what the, I want to go outside dance is because they can't tell you, you know, and physically they have to tell you uh, or whatever. Uh, You have to know when they're sick. You have to know when they're not feeling good. Um, and then what do you do when that happens? You know, um, and then the other thing is teaching 
teaching your pet how to communicate with you, like training the pet or whatever. Well, when you're working with somebody who can't communicate with you, you have to come up with some sort of a language. Like um, when a friend of mine, Mark, who, was, who had uh, HIV, he lost sort of a cognitive ability, but he could always raise his finger. And when he was mad at me, he raised the middle finger. When, he, you know, when, when he needed something to eat, he would raise his finger and point to his stomach. When he, when he had to go to the bathroom or he had to be changed or whatever, he would point to his private parts. Uh, when he had a headache, he pointed to his head. When he wanted to read, he pointed to his eyes. You know, so we created that whole thing and we were able to communicate perfectly. So the whole idea of I, I needed to know what his dance was for what he needed came out of that one book, which was like, you know, when the guy gave me the book, I looked at him and I said, you got to be kidding me, you know. And he said, no, just read it and translate it to whatever you can do. And, and that's how I translated it. Uh, and that's right around that time I started to realize um, because uh, I had hit the brick wall after he died too. Um, and I, I started to realize that I just don't know where to go from here. And a friend of mine who was a psychiatrist um, called me up and he asked me how I was doing. He says, come on, let's go out and get drunk. So I did. And I, of course, when I, you know, I got plastered and I spilled my guts about how I felt and blah, 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 and the whole nine yards. And he said, uh, so afterwards, he said, you know, you need to write all this stuff down. So I started writing, he said, write down your feelings, where you think they came from, how far back did they go, uh, what, you know, what were your res resolves with it and whatnot. So I started writing everything down. And six months later, when he, uh, we went out again and I gave him the book or gave him the notebook, uh, he looked at it and he says, you need to write a book. And that's when I started writing the book. And because I've never been a writer in my life, I can't spell for crap. Uh, and, you know, it, it was like, you know, it was it was something that I wanted to do, but I didn't know how to do it. And I had to learn. And eventually, 25 years later, I have a, a book and I've got two more books out uh, coming out soon. Um, and there's one one project that I did that really opened my eyes to a lot of stuff. And and it has to do a lot with caregiving also is is um, my uh, I'm, my son is adopted. I, he adopted me. He tells everybody. Um, I went kicking and screaming. I didn't want to have kids. <laughs> he, uh, his mother was HIV positive. She was on drugs um, and she was always in rehab. And so he always stood with me and he's, he was a little black kid about maybe three feet high, four feet high or whatever. And um, <clears throat> he, uh, uh, his mother and I were talking one day and she said, you know, I want to leave a legacy for my, my son, but I don't want to die and be remembered, be just a number or a statistic or remembered as uh, the woman who was always in rehab and died of AIDS. And so she and I talked for quite a while, for a couple of months about it. And we came up with this program. It's called Legacy. And what it is, is three questions. If you were to die today, how would you be remembered? And what you do is you kind of explore that with your friends, your family, you know, talk to people. You know, what, if I died today, what would you say about me type thing? And then the second question, after you go through a whole you know, period of time with that, is um, if you were to die today, how would you like to be remembered? And that's where you really get into your soul and you want to you, you look at what what inside of you do you want to expose? And, you know, what do you want to leave as your legacy? You know, and uh, what do you want people to know about you and that, that type of thing? So you kind of really explore that and you go through ins and outs and whatever. And the third question, uh, third one is um, it, now that you know the answer to both of those questions, what do you need to do, not do, include or exclude in your life? 
And what are the tools that you can use to create the legacy you want to leave? My book was my legacy. My, my sister said once after she read the book, she says, I've known my son, my, uh, I've known my brother for over 70 years and I never knew my brother until I read the book. She said, I knew he went, he lived in New York. I knew he did this, did that. He traveled around. He worked with design. He did this and that one. I never really knew who my brother was until I started reading the book. And that was, that was basically the legacy that I wanted to leave my family and community and whatnot. But it was also, for me, it was a huge healing process to find out, you know, until 1992, I had no idea who I was. I was basically just, you know, a caregiver walking around taking care of everybody else. And I had no identity, you know, and because everything I worked with was the identity of everybody else. And I couldn't project my identity on that. And so there were all kinds of things going on. And then right around that time, I started to realize that I do have an identity. I do have a legacy. I do have, you know, I am a caregiver. That's who I am. That's what I've grown up to be, I guess. And the fact that everybody I see and everything they do to me is caregiving. And no matter where you go, it's, um, you know, your job, you take care of your job. I use the legacy program in, uh, in retail where I say, if, if a customer walks in your store and it smells bad, they're not going to go in. If it looks bad, they're not going to go in. If it sounds bad, they're not going to go in. If it feels bad, they're not going to go in. They're using all their senses. Your legacy as a store depends on how you project to that person. And, you know, if you break that, you know, if, if you have a bad legacy, they're going to go around and say, don't go in there. It stinks or whatever. Um, you know, so that's what the legacy is. And it's like breadcrumbs, you know, Hansel and Gretel. Uh, sometimes the, the, the woodland creatures come over and pick up the breadcrumbs and they they disappear completely. So some of our legacies, they, they do disappear, but a lot of them stick around. And those are, the, you know, the breadcrumbs and the things you leave behind you. Those are the things that people see. Uh, you, you, you walk by somebody and you say, hi, Hey, how you doing? What happened? And you don't know that person, but you said, hi. And, and then that person remembers you, you know, and, and sees you again and said, they say, Hey, I haven't seen you in a while, but you don't even know these people, but those are the legacies we leave with. It's like breadcrumbs. And that evolves into a bigger legacy, which evolves into a bigger one. And, and then eventually your legacy, whatever, when you want to leave. So, um, but that was one of the things that, that came out of that. And it has, everything to do with caregiving because the people who you're taking care care of if you're not doing a, a job that they feel comfortable with it or if, if they're um the, there was a thing on on um uh, on facebook the other day that there's a there's a um oh what do you call it uh, a page called uh, the caregiver and on one of the topics they were talking about it said it said on the bottom it says i don't want you to be my caregiver and Basically, that that was a subject that everybody was starting to talk about because they people who are being cared for have that right to say, I don't want you to take care of me right now. You know, I don't feel comfortable with you or whatever, you know. So and that has to do with legacy, you know, or the fact that, you know, you're not equipped to help that person correctly. You know, so there's all kind. It, it's all intertwined and and, and um, convoluted in so so many ways that um I've just been fascinated with it uh, over the years and, and this uh, doing the book really helped me out as far as um, helping me to understand where I stood in it and gave me some identity at the same time, you know, yeah. but uh, yeah. by any chance, are you a cancer sign? No, <laughs> no. 
Because no, most of, most of the people that I I know that are cancer signs, uh, myself included, uh, have mm-hmm. that kind of ma- mindset. Um, it's more about other people than it is yourself. Um, for me, myself, like legacy wise, the only thing I want is for my students that I work with is that they know that I gave my all to make their life more like better, to make them more comfortable for them to be at at school in any given time. That's all I care about uh, when I'm when I'm working with these with these students. So. Um, that's the only legacy I would love to leave behind. I don't have kids myself, um, but I mean that would be my legacy that I wanted to leave behind, and I find that interesting. Do you find do you find as they get get older, you can't get rid of? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, so I, I try to participate a lot with the with the students in my school. So I'm in Toronto, Canada, and yeah. uh, so I, I I started this uh, uh, program. Uh, the Toronto Blue Jays started this program. Sorry for Challenger Baseball. And uh, I applied for it for our school and it was for special needs programs. And what they do is make it all inclusive. So because these students kind of get left out in uh, the sports of the school um, because they can't, you know, play with the regular students, they they made this program. So I decided I was going to coach this program and I've been running this program for the past three months. Um, They've been phenomenal with it. And we just got word that we won box seats to a Jays game for all of these kids to go to uh, in April. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it, it's a, it's amazing to see, um, I guess, the progression of all humanity from, let's say, 20, 25 years ago of how everyone was treated back then. We used to use the R word. Um, there used to yes. be different terminology for it. And, it, you know, it's just progressed a lot more and there's been a lot more acceptance and understanding of uh, certain individuals uh, in this world, which I love and the inclusivity. I love it. Yeah. And do you find there's been a big shift in that uh, when you say um, uh, we don't use the R word anymore, but I hear it so much now. Uh, also, you know, the N word and all this other. My son is African-American and I, I didn't hear the N word for a long time. He taught me more about um, uh, what do you call it? systemic racism than anybody else could have ever uh, because he lived in the projects. I had to go to the projects to pick him up. Um, and I could see where systemic racism on both sides, not just on the white side of the, or whatever, on both sides, um, where I, I could see. And a lot of it is, is kind of like uh, the systemic racism over here is, is the, uh, the backlash from the, the systemic racism over here. My son was um, stopped and frisked many times, and I didn't know it. And then finally, uh, he told me one day and I took him to the police station. And I said to the guy, to the cop there, I said, um, why was he stopped and frisked? And he said, well, it looks suspicious. I said, OK, um, how many white guys have you stopped and frisked in the past year? And he says, oh, you're going to give me the race card and whatnot, you know. And uh, from from that point on, he started, you know, I said, no, I'm not going to give you the race card, but I'm his father. And I don't want if you're going to be stopping and frisking him. You need to call me immediately. All right. He never got stopped in the first again. Yeah. Um, I, I said, well, you're a marked man now, Homer. You know, <laughs> you're never going to get stopped and first again. You know, but um, wh- where I was going with that is he, since that time, I all that period of time until the last maybe six, seven years, I guess. I six, seven years ago, I started hearing the N word more often. I was an N lover, you know, because I had a son who's African-American. Uh, and I, I have to always go back to the story of when, um, when I was in, in camp, I was at a camp church camp and one of my best friends 
was the blackest, darkest kid I've ever seen in my life. And his name was Lee. And we became friends immediately. And I, you know, we, we, you couldn't, you couldn't, if you saw him, you saw me because we were constantly together at the camp. And I never really understood racism that much. I didn't, you know, I didn't really get it. And I never heard the, uh, the N, uh, the N word. And one of the kids over there called me uh, an N lover. And I said, and I thought, well, oh, and I asked, I asked uh, Lee, I said, why do they call you, you know, the, the N word? And he said, well, that's what they call it. That's what, that's what we are. And so I, oh, okay. And then he, and then he uh, I said, well, he, he called me the N lover. And I said, well, yeah, he's a great guy. I love this guy, you know? And so I said, yeah, I guess I am, aren't I? You know? <laughs> and I never really saw that until later on, as I got older, I started to realize what that was. And I kind of grew into the, the whole system of, you know, not saying it or whatever. But um, I, do you see a shift in the way kids are talking about things like that or, um, or they're more apt to be bullying and, and saying negative things about other people more freely than they used to? Uh, yes and no. I mean, you're going to get the ones that are still going to say it, but I think for the most part, there's a lot more understanding in the world today going on, uh, in terms of special need, like you'll still hear the N word from time to time, uh, but you won't hear it as much. You'll see a lot of multiculturalism, which, you know, puts everybody together and, and there's no labels on anybody. Uh, we have our special needs department at school and the regular kids from upstairs, like the neurotypical kids will come downstairs and they're high-fiving the kids and they're, there's more understanding. Whereas when I was in school, if we had somebody with Down syndrome, I would never treat them badly. But I mean, everybody would think of them as an outcast. They were different. They, you know, they didn't, uh, they didn't fit in with the rest of us. Uh, I, I never thought that way. Um, it was just my upbringing, the way I was brought up by my parents. But now today you're seeing kids with more understanding with it and, and, and being able to mix with the kids and, and, and I, I guess get along with them. And I like it. I love seeing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I have been in school in, in uh, about five or six years now. It was 19, 2019 when I left the school system and started working in retail and, and then mental health. And um, which sometimes goes together, uh, <laughs> but yeah, when you you know mental illness, you go out shopping, you know. Um, but uh, what I what I started to see, and mostly mostly in in the rural areas where I'm living now, um, and I don't know whether it's because of the of the political climate or whatever, but I you know um, there I see more of a threat like white power um white supremacy or whatever you want to call it. i see i see that people coming out you know with their flags and you know the whole nine yards and demonstrating you know not much not saying it sometimes but uh i've heard you know i heard people yell at me and and call me the end and lover name or whatever um i've you know i've heard ki- people say to somebody else oh you're so are whatever you know and, you know, I, I think I've started to see that more and it's progressed in the last few years uh, than I have most all, all the time before. Um, and I just I, I don't know if it's just the political climate or if it's whatever, but I see I see it in younger kids now where I, I just uh, it kind of bothers me sometimes 
Um, but but uh, I, I find people aren't aren't afraid to say it anymore. You know. Now, well, I think we the world that we live in today, there's so much happening uh, through we you know we went through the pandemic for the past two years. Now we're entering into this time of uh, of war with Russia and Ukraine. There's just been a whole lot on kids' plates, as you mentioned earlier. You know, like it, 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 this is what kids have to grow up learning right now, right? This is like a war that's going on, and the COVID that they had to be, you know, he at least here for the last two years, they were doing online learning. Schools weren't open, uh, except yeah. for like the special needs department. So they were at home and they were doing classes over Zoom, uh, the way you and I are doing. But imagine having thirty kids on the class uh, with no, a teacher. You know, it, it's it's never going to work. So I mean, they weren't allowed to socialize with their friends. So a lot of the stuff they were watching was like on YouTube or, you know, movies at home. So, you know, maybe they're picking up language from there and and translating it into uh, the world today. But as far as I'm like, as as I see I'm in my area, my school uh, that I work in, I'm not in a um, like a rich neighborhood at all. By all means, uh, we have a lot of kids that come from uh, disadvantaged uh, areas. Um, they've been actually pretty good and I, I, I can't complain about it. Yeah. Yeah, I've I've just seen. It. I I think when I hear it, it, it kind of, it's almost like it amplifies with me. So it sounds louder than it actually is in some ways. But uh, and and also having you know an African American son and now having uh, a grandson and a granddaughter who are going to have to grow up in a world that is so different from where I grew up. Um, and and I wonder how they're going to do. And and you know, um, and I'm trying to leave a legacy. You know, my grandson is only three, so I, you know, I, I, I do videos talking to him as if he was 20 years old. And these, this is the legacy I'm going to leave him because basically I don't know if I'm going to be around when he's 20. I don't know if I'll see him graduate or get married or anything like that. And, and if I do live to be that long, I, that old, uh, I may not know I'm there. So, you know, what I'd like to do is leave right now, leave a legacy for him on video. So I'm talking to him about, you know, about the, the COVID crisis, uh, uh, Ukraine. I'm talking to him about my life, you know, who I am, um, the things that I do. I walk around the house sometimes and I show him things in my house uh, that eventually he'll probably see at some point because my son's going to get my house. So he's going to be familiar with some of that stuff too. So I've been trying to do something with that, but I'm always wondering, you know, um, because of the impact of social media, um, the threat of nuclear war right now, um, how is, you know, I'm, I'm curious to find out what that's going to, how that's going to impact him or her, you know, my, my granddaughter and my grandson. Um, you know, I see in my granddaughter is older, and the, there's times when I see where um, it has, she's acting a lot different than I expected her to act because of social media and stuff like that. Uh, I have no control over it. You know, grandfathers are only supposed to spoil the kids, the grandkids. So, you know, I have very little control. <laughs> but um, hopefully with, the, you know, doing doing the video. And I'm also doing the video for my son because my son, my son looked at me and said, are you doing this for your grandson? Why can't you do it for me too? So I can, you know, after you go, then I can, at least I can watch you on, on video and, and hear your voice and whatnot. So I'm doing that as a legacy too at the same time. Um, and that's all part of the book that I, that I wrote, but um, you know, it's, it's, it's just, um, I just wonder what's, what's really going to be happening 
you know, with, with all this and, and the social media, it's really changed in many ways for the positive, um, the caregiving world, because more people know what I see is more people know about caregiving now than ever. Um, and everywhere you look, you're going to find a book. Uh, I've, I have a whole collection of books and because I'm an author, I always ask somebody to sign it for me. You know, if they, if they wrote a book on caring, there's a, a lot of them are kids who have like, uh, autism or whatever. Um, and they, they wrote a book with there's I can't remember the name of it offhand, but, um, it was a kid who grew up with autism and he finally decided he's going to write a book about it because nobody understood him. And now he's got the book. So there's all this stuff that's actually out there that can be, be accessed. And, and yet we're still in, in, in a dilemma with, with caregiving. Um, you know, uh, most caregivers, if they do get paid, they only get paid minimum wage. Some, and in some locations, minimum wage is only $7 an hour. If you go down South, um, when I, I went down to South Carolina and one of the caregivers uh, that was working with a friend of mine down there uh, came in and, and she said, well, I don't get paid enough to do that because you know, I asked her to do something for me. I don't get paid enough to do that. And I said, well, here, here's 40 bucks to it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And she looked at me like, you realize that's like a whole day for me, you know? And and, and it I, doesn't even afford the cost of gas right now. Right. Yeah. Right. One hour. If you get paid $7 an hour, that's one gallon of gas. Yeah. You know, in some in uh, California, apparently, but you know, the, the the world is changing so quickly and so fast, uh, and and so deliberately sometimes that it's 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 hard to kind of grasp it. And what I do, basically, um, you know, I, I I find myself getting into a depression every so often. Um, uh, unfortunately, I watch TV, and um, you know, it's it's one of those things where because i'm a caregiver and i'm always in that caregiving mode i see something like like what's happening in ukraine and i'm so personally connected with that uh because of my friend who's uh he's my tech guy um and he lives in ukraine and you know i'm i'm just when something happens there i want to take care of it and make it right and i don't know how anymore and that that brings me into sort of a depression when, when i say de when i say depression it um it's one of those things where uh, I always tell everybody, I never realized I was I was in a depression until I looked at my house. <laughs> I haven't been taking care of my house. You know, it's like, you know, um, and I'm a collector and I have a 16 room Victorian with all this Victorian furniture. And I've been trying to turn the house into a uh, respite house for traumatic brain injury. So I collect furniture all the time. And, and also people have been giving me a lot. And what I didn't realize was that because of my depression, I wasn't doing anything with it. I was just collecting it. So it became it became the, almost like the hoarder syndrome. And, you know, now I just donated my grand piano to uh, a group down here, uh, a caregiving group that's opening up a storefront um, office and whatnot. And so I'm, and, you know, donating a lot of my stuff. Then I, but what I see is like I, I find myself getting into sort of, a depressed mode and i can't i i have to believe that everybody in this world right now is going through some sort of depression you know whether it be um you know personal depression or global um we're all afraid of nuclear war we're all afraid of you know something happening um you know that when we have presidential elections everybody's at each other um you know the voting crisis or whatever you want to call it. Um, all these things have been happening and 
you know, it's really been wearing on, on the populations. And we end up, instead of taking care of things that we should be taking care of, we end up di being diverted to do something else. And, uh, and that's where I find, um, and, and, and it happened with the, um, with the pandemic, you know, where so many people were diverted uh, from the pandemic that they weren't doing the things that they should have been doing or they could have been doing, but they were not allowed to do. And, and, and it caused the crisis and, and look at, look at how many nurses were, were short. So many people in the nursing and, and medical industry right now, we're short so many people. It's, it's, it's outrageous. And we're overwhelming the hospitals and not so much now, but we were. And, 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 and then, but what happens is people look at that and they say, well, you know, they should have taken their, their, um, they should have got the vaccine. Or, you know, they, they're not going to die. They'll just go to the hospital and they won't die, you know. And, and it's like, you know, they, they, they got to blame somebody or they have to put it on somebody else. And they're not taking that responsibility anymore. And I, I see such a big shift in, in our society in that way. Um, and as a caregiver, um, it's, it's so, um, it's almost like needles hitting me. And, and I have to do something about it or I have to. Uh, and, and that's when I get my depression, you know, sometimes. So, um, but I'm out of it. <laughs> I got out of it two days ago. I got out of my depression and I'm happy now, but uh, <laughs> yeah. so I, I remortgaged my house. So I'm happy now. <laughs> well, well, I find, you know, uh, somebody gave me some advice a long time ago and, and said, you know, you, you watch the news every day and you're, you know, you're always depressed. You're always sad because, you know, all you see is negativity. That's all you see. What you do is stop watching the news altogether. And I know how hard that is to do because I would get up every morning before work. I'd turn the news on to check the weather, see how the traffic was going to be going to work. And then, you know, all that negative news comes out. There's a war here. This, this is happening here. This is happening here. But I can tell you by cutting the news out in the morning, I feel much better because, mm -hmm. you know, that negativity isn't there. So, I mean, um, doing that has helped a lot with the mental health aspect of it. Um, because yeah. when you see that on the news, that's all you're going to think is there's negativity, 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 when that's yeah. not all that's going on in the world. There's a lot of positivity going on in the world, but the negative stuff is what sells. And that's why they're showing that. And that's the narrative that they're going to present. So uh, at the end of the day, I just said, you know what, I'm going to give up on watching the news in the morning. I'll get my news some other way during the day at some point, but I'll do it in increments, not like all at once in the morning time before I go to work. And then I'm already upset while I'm going to work. I just found yeah. that better to do it that way. And, and it's worked out for me. So mental health wise, that has kept me kind of sane uh, instead of having to see all of that at once. Yeah. I tried doing that with the, with the Ukraine, but my problem is that <laughs> when, uh, when I did get in touch with my friend over there and I hadn't, I hadn't seen TV in a, in a couple of days or three or four days, he, um, he said something to me and I said, really? And he goes, you mean you don't know about it? You know, and it's like, I felt guilty. Oh my God, I haven't been watching. I'm sorry. You know, and you know, on that level, it's a, it's a personal level. Yes. So yeah. I have, I have to kind of keep, keep abreast of it. But other, in other situations, I do turn on, turn off the TV, you know, or try to get, try to do something else, you know, because I can, yeah. I could sit and watch TV all day long, you know, if I, if I wanted to at 74, I'm allowed, you know? Yeah. So <laughs> You've earned it. Yeah, <laughs> that's what they tell me. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Awesome. So we're going to wrap this up. Uh, we've gone about 45 minutes, which is great. It's fantastic. A lot of good stuff that you've had in there and a lot of good conversation today. 
Uh, is there anything else that you want to tell anybody about the book, where they can find it, uh, where it's for sale, any social media accounts that you have that you want people to try to follow you on? Yeah, uh, my website is um, author Eli Show. I'm sorry, author Eli Shaw. Dot com and that's a u t h o r e l i s h a w all one word and on there you can get most of the information uh i've had a lot of problems with i, I hate to say it but i've had problems with amazon um where um they they were they had a whole bunch of my books and i guess they had a fire sale and they sold a whole bunch of my books for like you know eight dollars a piece or five dollars a piece or whatever so i know and i didn't get any royalties from it so i'm trying to figure out what's going on with that so um but my also my um uh my email is b kershaw 5607 at gmail.com if you want to buy a book um i'm more than happy to send if you send me an email uh you can send it to me there and um uh i'll i'll sign it and you know the shipping will be in, included in the whole nine yards um there's there's one thing that's happening right now um the um i've been getting involved with the uh i don't know if you know this guy i think you do um uh yeah randy lansberg he um he's doing a uh film called um the secret lives of uh mermaids and dolphins and it's um i i got introduced to him through uh, social media and i we're doing banners of my book that are going to be in his movie so if you ever get the chance to see the movie you'll see my banners there too but um he's uh the book the movie's going to be coming out i'm not sure this the end of this year or maybe next year i'm not really sure uh with this still doing a lot of work on it and also i just um been talking to some people about turning the book into a movie so um this there's a lot of things up in the air with that uh but yeah if you um if you want uh author elishaw.com um and um you know you're more than welcome to uh email me and uh I'll send you the book or whatever um and it you know if you know anybody who's a caregiver um you know tell them about the book because it's or even if they're not a caregiver if they if you think somebody could use it uh don't hesitate to tell them you know it's um it's it's really been a piece of my heart that you know I've kind of opened up so awesome all right so everybody listening today or when this episode does come out go and check out authorelishaw.com uh you can email him like he said and uh purchase the book love to see everybody get your hands on this book really interesting conversation today thank you very much for joining us on the show it was a pleasure to have you on uh, really love the conversation. Uh, that's going to do it for our, our edition of Pod Jerky. Of course, you can always find Pod Jerky on Instagram and Twitter at Pod Jerky. You can also find all of our links on our link tree. That's l i n k t r dot e e forward slash Pod Jerky, as well as our bite size. That's b y t e s i z e dot m e forward slash Pod Jerky. As always, stay safe, be kind to each other, and we will see you later. Bye.